seen this morning, the story, the parable of Jesus that was read for us earlier. That is on page 740, if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you. Luke 16, verses 1 to 13. Oh, thank you. Look at that. So this morning we continue our July series on what the Bible has to say about money and possessions. Last week, before Greg spoke, I introduced this four-week series, and I mentioned that this topic um, is a topic that I'd been meaning to address for uh, some time here at CBC, because how we view and how we handle our money is a very important part of a life which seeks to follow Jesus. Now, my goal when preaching on money has always been to never have to ask for money on behalf of the church in a sermon, because that way my motives are pure, and you can hear what I'm trying to say. Um, And so I felt a certain amount of pressure over these last three years to, to find an opportunity quick to preach about money before CBC actually needed money, because then then I wouldn't be able to accomplish my goal. And truth be told, I think I've left it a little bit late because now, see, Barbara's up here saying amen. Um, We have a building renovation project, and I believe there's a fundraising committee which at some point will be inviting us to give toward those renovations. And it's summer, and people are away, and so giving goes down in the summer, and so our church trustees are concerned about the budget. But, you know, I'm going to let them worry about that. Um, I, this morning, am not going to ask anyone at CBC to give more money to CBC. Would you uh, turn to someone next to you and and tell them that? The pastor said he's not going to ask anyone for money this morning. Okay, now that we've got that straight, we can get on with the message. Last week, I mentioned that we're offering an excellent little companion book to the sermon series, Randy Alcorn's The Treasure Principle. Um, And we've got 10 or so left uh, out in the foyer. So um, if you didn't get a copy next week, I really encourage you to pick it up and read it. It's a quick read. It's a challenging read, hopefully an encouraging and exhilarating read as well. If you have started reading this book, then you may have come across the point that Alcorn makes which the reading that Barbara read makes this morning as well, that you can't think about money rightly without also thinking about the end of the world, or at least the end of your life. That's called long-term investing. Thinking about money just not in terms of today or tomorrow, but thinking and planning in terms of the long term. And that's what the passage we're looking at today encourages us to do. But before we get into the passage, a reminder that your end may come sooner than you think. Several years ago, a 24-year-old man named David Horton, who was a wanted man, was on the run from the law. And uh, this is a true story. His end came on May 7, 2003, when he decided to go to a Cincinnati Reds baseball game with his girlfriend. As it happened, his parole officer also attended the game. What are the chances of that? And during the game, Horton decided to give his girlfriend a smooch, and that kiss was displayed on the ballpark's kiss cam, on the big screen, in front of the whole uh, attendance of the great American ballpark, and they saw the kiss, including the parole officer. Again, this is this guy's unlucky day. 
So before the night was out, the parole officer and a policeman arrested Horton, 24, in his front row seat. Well, this morning's story in Luke is about another man whose life came in some ways similarly to a swift end. Now, this is probably one of Jesus' most obscure and confusing parables, partly because it seems like Jesus holds this guy up as an example for us to emulate, and partly because what is this story about anyway? Well, let's see. As we think about this story, let's do our best to put ourselves in the sandals of a Middle Eastern peasant. After all, that's what Jesus was. And most of the people Jesus told his parables to were Middle Eastern peasants too. So it helps a lot in understanding Jesus' parables to try to hear them from that perspective. And I'll try to help us do that this morning. The first person that we meet in this story is a rich man. And based on everything we can tell from the story, as well as what we know about Middle Eastern culture at the time, he was most likely a wealthy landowner who employed a hired manager to rent out his vast holdings of land to a number of tenant, profit, uh, tenant farmers to make a profit. Uh, tenant farmers were small business owners who would in turn hire local peasants to work the land that they uh, were renting from the rich landowner. And at harvest time, these tenant farmers would owe the rich landowner a fixed share of the harvest. Now, if we're peasants, we're used to being exploited by people like this rich man and, and slaving away on their lands. And, and so we might find this story surprising because this particular rich man doesn't come off as a cold-hearted and merciless rich man at all. Let me make three quick observations about this. First, when the rich man finds out that his manager has been squandering his funds, he doesn't do the thing we would expect and which he fully had the right to do in that culture. He doesn't get angry and beat the manager and throw him into debtor's prison. This manager has squandered vast sums of this rich man's money. But the rich man doesn't scold or fume or condemn or seek revenge or recompense, but he simply dismisses the manager. That's merciful if you ask me. Second, notice again later when, when the dishonest manager gives away more of the rich man's money to secure his own future, again, the rich man doesn't punish him. We'll come back to the surprising ending later, but just notice for right now how merciful this rich man is. Third, it's also worth noting that this story comes right after the well-known parable of the prodigal son. And these two parables are connected in some ways. In both stories, we have a man of some means. And in both stories, a junior member of that man's household squanders the man's wealth. In fact, the, the same Greek word for squander is used in both stories. So since the father figure in the parable of the prodigal son is abundantly merciful when his son squanders his wealth, we may surmise that the rich man in this story is likewise abundantly merciful as well. All right, so let's start now with that background at the beginning of the story. Word has gotten around this uh, rich man's household that his manager is squandering his wealth. So the master calls in the manager and he says, what is this I hear about you? You're fired. Basically, turn in your financial records on your way out the door. 
Now, at first, we don't know if the manager is actually guilty. So uh, He's been accused, but is the accusation true? Well, we quickly find out because what happens next is surprising. The manager says absolutely nothing to the rich man in reply when he's accused. Now, I've been told that in, in Middle Eastern culture, which is an in-your-face culture and which is a shame culture in which maintaining your honor is as important in life itself, that we'd expect this manager to indignantly and defensively and to loudly and vehemently protest his innocence. But the manager says nothing. And his silence speaks louder than any words. It speaks at least three, maybe four things. First, I'm dead guilty. Second, the master knows I'm guilty. Third, I have no hope of getting my job back or clearing my name. And fourth, quite possibly, the master is firing me, but not imprisoning me. He's being gracious to me, and so I better not rock the boat. The end has come for the manager. He's experiencing judgment day here. His fun with his master's money is over. He's lost his job. And in a tight-knit agricultural community like this, where word gets around quickly, everyone knows everyone else's business, what hope of another job as a manager does he have? None. So as the manager walks off from that confrontation with the rich man to gather up his financial books, to return them to the master, he's pondering his fate. What is he going to do? His life is ruined. He figures his only possible options at that point are to dig or to beg, which were two of the lowest of all professions in that culture. This guy has no hope. And for a man of his status to, to dig, even if he was strong enough to do so, or to beg in that culture would be worse humiliation than, than for a corporate executive to panhandle in front of the corporate offices where he used to have a penthouse suite. And in, in a shame culture like this, this guy's life is just over. He, he's going to crawl under a rock and die. Then out of his desperation, he hatches a plan. It's his only hope. In the words of New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey, his plan is to risk everything on the quality of mercy he's already experienced from the master. Bailey continues, if he fails, he will certainly go to jail. If he succeeds, he will be the hero of the community. Let's play out the story and see what Bailey means. The manager quickly calls in the tenant farmers who owe his master, the rich man, part of the harvest at harvest time when the rent comes due. From the sizable debts that they owe, these tenants are uh, men of some means themselves, probably renting and cultivating large tracts of land. And if the harvest is decent, after they've paid off their debts, they'll still enjoy a handsome profit. That's the business they're in. And the manager says to them, take your bill and reduce your debt. Now, it's important to realize that the tenants don't know that the manager has been fired yet. I mean, if they knew that the manager had been fired, they would never reduce their debts. Because if they reduced their debts, they knew that, first of all, they'd never get away with it, and they would risk the ire of the rich man on whom they depend. So they don't, they don't know the manager has been fired, and therefore they can only assume one thing, and that is that the manager 
And the rich landowner have decided to cut them a break. This was sometimes done in years of poor harvest when when the yield on the landowner's land would not be what everyone had anticipated when they'd signed the lease agreement at the beginning of the agricultural season. So reading between the lines, the conversation spoken or implied between the manager and these debtors probably went something like this. The manager says, listen, you know and I know that there hasn't been much rain this year that the locusts have been worse than usual. The harvest isn't going to be all we hope for. We realize that. And so I went and I talked to the old man for you, and, and you know he came around, sensible and generous guy that he is, and he decided to let me give you a break. So go ahead, you may reduce your bill. Well, of course, this makes both the rich man and his manager instant heroes in the community. And in that culture, even as the first thankful tenant is heading out the door, you can be sure that he's singing the praises of the generous landowner. And by the time the last debtor has exited, the whole village knows about the, the rich man's benevolence. He's a merciful man after all, and again, he's, he's proved himself to be kind and praiseworthy. Remember, this, was an, this is an honor culture we're talking about. And the rich man's honor and reputation have just gone up a few more notches in the community, which is more valuable than riches itself. Well, by the time the manager returns to the rich man to, to hand in the books, what is the rich man to say to him? He, he basically has two choices. He can justly castigate the wicked manager again and throw him in prison and then go and explain to all the celebrating tenant farmers that this has all been a mistake and, and that he's not, in fact, as generous as they think and that he's punished the manager who wrongly suggested that he was. Or he can smile wryly and extend grace and mercy yet again to the manager and accept the praise and the honor from the community and admit only to himself that he's been had by his manager <laughs> who now has friends all over town who owe him one. If the rich man was a, a wicked and a, a hot-headed, unscrupulous man himself who didn't care what the public thought, then he might in anger opt for the first option. But as a generous, merciful man, he can only do the second. And so he says to the dishonest manager in effect, well, I'll give you one thing. You're certainly shrewd. <laughs> Can't Jesus tell a great story? <laughs> so why did Jesus tell this parable? He told it to encourage us to consider our own end. When God summons us to give account for the ways that we've squandered all that God has entrusted to us. Because make no mistake, our end sooner or later is coming. As Hebrew 9 says, we're all destined to live once and after that to face judgment. And when we face our judge, he will ask us to give an account for all the resources that he's entrusted to us. Just like that rich man did to that manager. And it's against that backdrop that Jesus invites us to think about what we do with our money and with our possessions. If you think about it, it just makes sense to think about money in terms of our eventual and inevitable end. 
Because all the fun that the dishonest manager had with his master's money isn't worth, isn't worth it anymore once his end comes and his master finds out and he's been called on the carpet. When it comes to money, thinking long-term is always the wise approach. Now, I realize we live in an age of buy now and pay later. And many Americans don't even think past their next paycheck. And, and so for some of us, we would be making a big improvement if we could just start planning for next month or for next year or for our retirement. But Jesus is pushing us even beyond that to, to take an eternal perspective on money, to look beyond the next 20 or 40 or 70 years or however many we think we have left. Because life is short, and our end will come. And then what we did with the money that God had entrusted to us will matter a great deal. We probably all heard the trite sayings, um, you've never seen a, a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And uh, life is like a game of Monopoly. When the game is over, it all goes back into the box. But these things make a profound point, trite though they may be. The, the long-term perspective matters profoundly, and, and thinking long-term just makes sense. After all, if you knew that, uh, say, a certain coastal bluff with a great ocean view was going to give way next spring and fall into the ocean, you'd be a fool to buy a house on it, even if it was your dream home. If you knew a company was going to go bankrupt in three months' time, you'd be a fool to buy stock in it, right? A BBC News column a few years ago told about Stuart Holden, the Liverpool clergyman who held the only unused first-class ticket for the maiden voyage of the Titanic. He was unable to make the journey because his wife fell ill the day before the Titanic was to set sail. And after the ship sank, and we all know the story, it sent more than 1,500 passengers to a watery grave Holden hung that ticket in a cardboard frame and, and wrote over it, Who redeemeth my life from destruction. And the ticket, I'm told, is still kept in the archives of the Merseyside Maritime Museum in Liverpool. You can go and see it there. How many other people would have, have liked to know that the Titanic was going to sink? Right? They would have never paid big bucks to get on board. But the problem is we don't know what the future holds. But Jesus says in this parable, well, yes, you do. Oh, you may not know the day or the hour, but, but I've given you the general scenario. And you're a fool if you don't act accordingly. In the treasure principle, Alcorn applies this to, to our, econo our economic lives. He puts it like this. He says, as a Christian, you have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return. The ultimate insider trading tip is this. Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns or when you die, whichever comes first. Investment experts known as market timers, uh, Alcorn continues, read signs that the stock market is about to take a downward turn. Then they recommend switching funds immediately into more conservative and stable investment vehicles. We'd all love to have a good one of those working for us. <laughs> 
Jesus functions here as the foremost market timer. He tells us that, that or he tells us to once and for all switch investment vehicles. Christ's financial forecast for earth is bleak, but he's unreservedly bullish about investing in heaven where every market indicator is eternally positive. Now, I know it's tempting to put off Jesus' advice here, to think like the dishonest manager. I'm going to have some fun now with the money that my master has entrusted to me, and and I'll invest long-term later, you know, manana. That's a dangerous game to play because we have no way of knowing when our end will come. And all the while, we are squandering our master's money. Focus, Jesus says to us. Focus on the long term now. Focus on that amazing picture we saw last month when we looked at the new Jerusalem and the the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the book of Revelation. Dream a little bit. Get that uh, real, sure, wonderful reality fully in view. And invest with that coming reality in mind. In fact, let's take a minute uh, now and, and think to yourself. When this short, transitory, unpredictable life is over, and you and I enter the even more real life, which is to come, eternal life, what will we have waiting for us? As Barbara put it earlier, that last bottom line on our investment sheet, what is that figure that's waiting for us? How much of your, or how much of the wealth that you've been entrusted with in this life Have you used in a way so as to store it up for the next? As Alcorn points out here, Jesus isn't arguing primarily on spiritual or moral grounds here. He's he's just arguing, you know, on a matter of smarts. Jesus is, is reasoning with us. He's appealing to our common sense. He's saying it's just downright dumb to sink a lot of money into something that isn't going to last all that long, when, when you have a much more safe and secure investment opportunity. In verse 8, Jesus says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And I think what Jesus means here is, is there are plenty of people in this world who understand how money works. They, they've made their millions. They've, they've figured it out. And like the, or like the dishonest manager, they, they, um, they know how to get ahead and, and they know how to take care of themselves. They know how to put money to work. Why aren't God's people just as shrewd? I'm going to use the word savvy. I like it better. Why aren't we just as savvy about how the kingdom of God works? Why aren't we the Warren Buffetts of the kingdom of God? Why don't we have as much common sense, as much savvy about securing our own futures? Why don't we study our, our kingdom investment options? Why don't we develop an eternal investment strategy? Why don't we seek out the best investment advice we can find from a long-term kingdom perspective? That's what Jesus is Asking us. That's the point he's making. And then in verse 9, Jesus gives us some 
savvy advice. It's simple and it's profound. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to be savvy with your money? Follow this advice, verse 9. I tell you, Jesus says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's what the shrewd manager did in the parable. He, he, he shrewdly used his master's resources with which he'd been entrusted to make friends for himself so that when his end came, he had a place to go. We would be wise to do the same. But how? How do you, you use worthly wealth to make friends for yourself who will, will welcome you into eternal dwellings? Well, perhaps by, by supporting missionaries or, or evangelists who, who can help others come to know Jesus, who will gain eternal life and who will be friends for you to welcome you when you get to the life to come. Or perhaps by paying the salaries of, of pastors like me and, and Anne, and who, who can devote ourselves full time to, to preaching and to discipling God's people. But I'm convinced that Jesus is talking primarily here about something else. I, I, I'm convinced that he's talking primarily about giving generously to the poor. And let me explain to you why I say that. Let me give you three reasons. First, because earlier in Luke, and repeatedly in different ways through Luke, Jesus says th things along these lines. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the poor will be plentiful in those eternal dwellings that Jesus talks about being welcomed into. They're the kind of people who could be friends who could welcome you there. Second, because Jesus tells us to use money to make friends for ourselves. And friendship in Bible times was a word that was often associated with benevolence. If you were wealthy and you gave generously to someone in need, in that culture, you would now call that person you gave to a friend. You wouldn't call them a charity case. That would be demeaning. You'd call them a friend. In that day, people regularly used the word friend to describe someone who received support from a wealthy benefactor. And third, in the very next parable, we find a wicked rich man who's suffering in Hades after death and he's looking for a friend in heaven. He's, he's, uh, he's in agony. He's looking for someone to welcome him or at least to help him. But he has no friend there. The poor beggar Lazarus is there. And Lazarus, uh, during his lifetime, evidently didn't receive any help, any support from this rich man outside whose gate he begged. And so Lazarus is no friend, is no help to him now. So anyway, that's the way. I read it. That's the way, what I, th what I think Luke is, is getting at there, first and foremost, when he talks about making friends for yourself, although there are other creative applications of that, for sure. So Jesus says, be savvy about the kingdom. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these, the poor, the needy, the little people. Use worldly wealth now to make friends for yourself, who will later welcome you into eternal dwelling. Well, then Jesus goes on in verse 10 to 12, and we'll look quickly at the rest of this. And he gives us more savvy advice about investment and finances. 
And Jesus appeals next in 10 to 12 to the common principle that you find in almost any workplace. Um, For example, if a a company gives a woman a company Ford to use for her uh, job, and she gets drunk and she wraps that Ford around a tree, will the company give her a company Lexus? No. If a a man loses or embezzles or squanders $1,000 of company money, will the company entrust him with $100,000? Of course not. It's just common sense. And Jesus says, if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? If you haven't even learned to apply a a long-term, savvy, Jesus kingdom perspective to the monopoly money and the, the plastic toys you have in this life, do you really think God will entrust you with the things that matter to him in the next No way. Jesus goes on. If you haven't been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you anything of your own? Now notice, as we've been assuming already this morning, Jesus is clear that our worldly wealth is not actually ours. All that we have doesn't belong to us. Like the manager of the rich man, you are God's manager. I am God's manager. And God has given you and me some of his wealth to manage for his purposes. Actually, for us in North America, God has given us a very large chunk of it. What kind of job are we doing? Are we squandering it? Are we frittering it away on our own petty desires, everything we want or crave? Jesus is saying, come on, use your common sense. If this is how you spend God's money in this life, when you get to the next, do you think God is really going to give you true heavenly riches of your own? Of course not. So get started now. It's not too late. Prove yourself faithful now. And then Jesus concludes in verse 13 with some more savvy money advice. Can you take any more? (laughs) What happened to Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild? Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. One master says, go mow my lawn. The other says, go clean my house. You can't do both. You'll wind up loving one master and hating the other. And that's what it's like with money and with possessions, Jesus says. It's a a master. It, It takes on a life of its own and it controls you if you don't take control of it. We're naive if we think money and possessions are neutral, that they don't allure us and entice us. I know they, they pull on me. They say, they say, trust me, accumulate me, uh, use me, and then you can have whatever you want. Save me, and then you'll be secure. We've all heard those voices, right? Money is a master. So in conclusion, Jesus leaves us with the question, who is your real master, money or God? It can't be both. Jesus just said so. So which is it? Well, I don't think the answer is found in your heart or my heart. I think the answer is found in our bank records. So here's the challenge for this morning. I encourage you to go home And if you dare, 
to take a look and to see who your true master is. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for words which which are true, words which you speak to us because you love us and you want the best for us. And Jesus, I don't think I fully grasped before going over this passage again this past week just how savvy you are when it comes to investment and money. And your advice runs so counter to everything we read in the Wall Street Journal and see around us every day. And it will be so easy to forget your advice and to go on with our lives. But I pray that you would give us the gift of not being able to do that. And Jesus, thank you that your father, the rich man, is so merciful. And as we think about our financial lives, no doubt we will need to cast ourselves upon your mercy once again. Thank you that you welcome us back. Thank you that you give us new chances. In Jesus' name, amen.